0: Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of A2Easy. I have Vaughn here with me.
1: Hi, everyone, and given that anyone who has clicked on this episode knows the title, Harry, please, could you define an upper GI bleed?
0: Okay, yeah, fine, straight to it. Wow, <laughs> we normally do it more in <laughs> intro, but yes, sure. Um, but be forewarned, I'm going to say this and then say it's kind of pointless. This is a classic pop quiz on a surgical ward round type question, rather than anything that's actually clinically useful in practice. So, ready? The anatomical boundary is at the so-called suspensory ligament of the duodenum, aka the ligament of treats, trites, I'm I'm not really sure which it is, but this is a ligament which anchors the duodenum to the posterior abdominal wall, because otherwise it would just flop around the abdomen, which is bad. Anything before it, its connection at D4, is foregut or upper GI. Remember the duodenum is made up of four parts. This effectively means that anything which causes bleeding from the esophagus to the stomach to the duodenum can be classed as an upper GI bleed.
1: Okay, so if that's a technical answer, why is it pointless?
0: Because in clinical practice, a patient doesn't present to you saying I am bleeding from above or below that specific ligament. Bleeding is bleeding, and it isn't definite which end of the GI tract is coming from.
1: So it isn't as simple as bleeding out from the mouth, upper, bleeding, PR, lower.
0: No, sadly not. And to be honest, this is a common misconception. And when I was thinking about this episode, this was something I kind of overlooked for a bit. The most useful description here clinically is the concept of suspected GI bleeding. If someone is producing blood from the mouth, the first thing to separate from is where you think it's coming from. Key consideration being is this from the lungs, hemoptysis, or is this from the GI tract, hematemesis or hematemesis again depending on how you pronounce it. You should always check if they're coughing it up or retching and clearly vomiting. Sometimes it's not as clear as you would hope it would be, Massive hemoptysis makes you think of PE, and PEs have a tendency to get missed, so do you keep that possibility in the back of your mind. The classic type of bleeding with hemoptysis is described as being coffee ground. It really looks like wet, used coffee grounds. It's not chunks, it's not food content. It happens as some of the blood coagulates and clumps, which forms these grounds.
1: Okay, so try and clarify clinically if this is actually hematemesis. Coffee ground vomiting is a good giveaway. Anything you need to bear in mind if they are bleeding per rectum?
0: So PR bleeding shows you there is some form of bleeding going on in the GI tract. You should clarify if the blood is bright red and often separate from the stool, or if it's much darker and clearly a part of the stool.
1: So the darkest stool that you would describe is melena, Right.
0: Yes, and for reference later, I, to help people identifying this and coffee ground vomiting at the bedside, I will put some rather gruesome links in the description. Melina has a characteristic smell, and I always think it looks a little shiny, and almost with a slightly purplish hue.
1: Great. <laughs> so, <never> why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so why is the distinction important?
0: Well, to be honest, it isn't necessarily, but it is helpful. Melina is classic upper GI bleeding because it shows the blood has been digested and integrated into the stool, but fresh PR bleeding can be caused by a bleed anywhere in the GI tract.
1: Wouldn't the blood be digested if the bleeding was in an upper GI though?
0: Not always is the key point. Your, your body doesn't respond well to having a large blood meal in the GI tract, so it can really accelerate the transit of the tract and lead to the blood being passed before it's had any chance to get actually digested.
1: So to summarize, hematoketsia and melina can both be due to bleeding from the upper GI.
0: Exactly. And hopefully they start to show you why separating upper and lower GI bleeding into separate camps is not that useful clinically when these patients present, because it's often not that clear. The real key thing when assessing these bleeds is to quantify severity. People often use descriptors like tablespoons, teaspoons, cups. For some reason we tend to use imperial units for this, but then quantify known bleeds in hospital in metric are Um, I don't know why we do this. Come to think of it, it's it's kind of like baby weights. You know, we weigh them up in kilos, but then there seems to be this tradition that all parents will convert that into stone and ounces without anyone telling them to.
1: Okay. Let's leave babies to fifth year. Yeah, fair. So so think of these bleeds in terms of the entire GI tract because you can be sure. And the critical thing is to clarify how much blood they have lost.
0: Exactly. And upper and lower GI bleeding are really more academic terms Useful for, um, that are useful for clarifying the different underlying causes more than anything.
1: Okay, so given we have spoken about colorectal cancers and diverticular disease in previous episodes, and their key differential for PR bleeds, let's not go down that path. But just to check, given that we said hemoptysis can mimic hematemesis, is there anything that can mimic a PR bleed?
0: Good question, yes. And thankfully, this is a benign problem compared to hemoptysis. I once got called to see a patient on a cancer ward who had, quote-unquote, explosive black diarrhoea. Wow. Um, yeah, I know right. Um, they were worried he was having a bleed, rather obviously. So I checked his drug chart before running over and saw he was an iron.
1: Which causes black stools and can cause diarrhoea.
0: Exactly. So I checked the bowl, as grim as it sounds, but it was actually great because the nurses didn't flush us away, honestly, because then you get a look for yourself. Um and I asked him if this was new, point one, important thing to always ask. And then he calmly said to me he had had black stools and loose bowels for several, several years. And this was nothing different.
1: Always uh, was fine anyway. that way. So with Melina, always check for iron on the drug chart.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, although it is, of course, definitely possible for someone to have a bleed and be on iron. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. But getting that info on the history really helps give you some context and, and chatting to this guy who sort of reassured me from that point of view.
1: Okay, so iron supplements can cause black stools. You've, talking, you've spoken a lot about the different ways a bleed can present. Should we move on to talking about some of the common causes?
0: Yeah, so to quote Amir Sam, infection, inflammation, malignancy. Infections, but mainly H. pylori, which we have also spoken about previously, they cause ulcers in the stomach and the duodenum, which can then bleed. Inflammatory causes, they're also a big concern here, as some of them can be particularly dangerous. You would be right to note alcohol is a common theme among these next three causes. So firstly to say alcohol is a gastric irritant, and if you like a, a very social form of poisoning, I don't need to tell you that people who drink too much alcohol end up feeling sick and vomiting. That vomiting involves lots of peristalsis and puts a huge amount of pressure on the esophagus and the stomach. That pressure can lead to small tears in the submucosa and gastric and esophageal walls. These are Mallory-Weiss tears. They tend to be longitudinal, aka it tears from the inferior to superior, rather than a ring-like shape, if if you get what I mean. They don't tear the actual muscle, however, and they are a superficial problem. However, the reason they are a problem is because the submucosa contains some vasculature, which, when torn, bleeds. In exams, the buzzwords are blood streaks vomit, perhaps conveying how mild these tears tend to be compared to other causes of bleed. So
1: remember, alcohol use and blood streaked vomit malorevised tear in exam world.
0: Yes, although to be fair, alcohol is really just a great example of something common which causes vomiting. Any cause of intense retching, like food poisoning for example, can also do it.
1: Okay, so there's peptic ulcer disease with H. pylori and vice tears. Anything else?
0: Well, it wouldn't be a talk about upper GI bleeds if we didn't mention varices, the singular of which is called a varix. It's all to do with alcohol again, but rather than some severe retching or sudden spontaneous perforation, this is a problem brought on by liver disease. When the liver becomes cirrhosed, i.e. scarred and fibrotic, it has an effect on the liver's vasculature. The liver becomes stiff, And so the pressure on the vessels inside increases, which is a backup effect on the hepatic portal system. This is one way you get so-called portal hypertension. And at school, I for one was taught the hepatic portal vein was one vein which took all the gut nutrition to the liver for metabolizing. In reality, the hepatic portal vein is the culmination of an entire system of veins that reach all over the GI tract from head to toe, basically. And not head. Oh, um, well, well, yeah, kind of head to toe. Um, it's a big drainage system that steers blood through the liver, but it has some fail-safes.
1: What do you mean?
0: Well, if you didn't have a plan B and your portal vein became magically blocked by a thrombus or something, you would have no way for all that blood to ever get back to the heart, which would be bad. So the fail-safes are called portal systemic or portocarval anastomosis. There are several different sites, but the relevant one today is the esophageal portacarval anastomosis it's a great phrase isn't it mm. carval here for reference is because it's between the portal system and the systemic vena cava vena cava circulation
1: so what happens at the esophageal anastomosis during portal hypertension
0: well veins unlike arteries have capacity to expand and when there is a backlog around the liver like a traffic jam it backs up these anastomoses, and the veins swell a grossly distended anastomotic vein is called a varix A ruptured varix is a big problem, as there is lots and lots of poor blood which can then come out.
1: So a typical presentation would be sudden hematemesis in someone with a background of liver disease with portal hypertension.
0: Exactly, and another potentially life-threatening emergency involving alcohol. And remember earlier we said infection, inflammation, malignancy. Cancers are disorganized bundles of cells which have disorganized vascular systems alongside it which make them prone to bleeding. Given there are many cancers in the GI tract, it's probably a topic for another day, but you should be aware that, upper, um, that a GI cancer can be a cause.
1: So the main causes for upper GI bleeds, in no particular order, peptic ulcer disease, Mallory virus tears, esophageal viruses, and an upper GI cancer.
0: Yeah, sorry, a big part of this is all the underlying causes. Also, bearing in mind that you can't be sure if it's an upper bleed anyway. So now that we have dived into the deep end with all those causes, let's resurface, if you like, uh, and think about GR bleeds as a a general problem.
1: Right. So tell me about the clinical presentation.
0: So quantifying the amount of blood loss will help you triage the patient. The next thing to do in my mind is an A2E assessment and check their OBS.
1: What are you looking for specifically?
0: Well, hemodynamic stability, really, which is just whether they have a blood pressure above 90 over 60. Tachycardia, tachypnea can also suggest a symptomatic anemia, which is in keeping of this whole bleeding patient scenario.
1: So assess for hemodynamics instability, blood pressure drops or tachycardia with bleeding often suggests a major hemorrhage.
0: Completely. But I'll be honest, a so-called major hemorrhage protocol deserves its own topic entirely, really. So we'll leave it there for today. Let's move on to grading the severity of an upper GI bleed.
1: So how do we do that?
0: Scoring systems, yay, everyone's favourite topic. Um, <laughs> so there are two worth knowing about, all right? Um, it's the Glasgow Blatchford score and the Rockall score. There's also this Glasgow imrie score, which we've about previously, which is for pancreatitis. So most people just call the first one I mentioned today, the Blatchford, to make it less confusing. Why are there two? Because you do a Blatchford when the patient is being admitted. To assess their risk and therefore the likelihood of needing an endoscopy, spoiler alert, and you do a Rockall before an endoscopy itself. The Rockall helps you decide who might need an ITU admission after the endoscopy.
1: Great. How do I remember that? <laughs>
0: so enthusiastic! Um, I, I Okay, so I wouldn't learn the parts of each scoring system. In real life, you look them up as you need them. That's the truth. Um B, but however, for exam world, B comes before R in the alphabet. So you do a Blatchford before you do a Rockle.
1: Oh, that's actually quite good.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, love th- it,
1: I, I love it when it it when goes like, you know, when it's convenient in that aspect. Yeah, I wish
0: spent I don't a lot of time thinking like about that. that. Thank you very much. <laughs> but it got me through finals just fine. So it should be, it should be okay for you guys. Um, yeah. One thing to mention for a Blatchford is that it looks at their history, FBC, using and Es and their Ops.
1: So that begs the question... How do we investigate GI bleeds?
0: Bedside bloods imaging, as always, right? Um, at mm-hmm. the bedside, look at any vomit or bowel movement. If vomiting, inspect the mouth as their teeth, there's often some residue around it. Because remember, someone who's actually that unwell probably hasn't brushed their teeth before seeing you. A DRE DRE is necessary to check for any blood on the finger. Please note that there's obvious bleeding around the area. You already have their proof that they are bleeding PR. So doing a DRE would only be useful to check for a low down mass.
1: So, OPS and inspect the and below.
0: Exactly. And looking for signs of liver disease and portal hypertension will also be crucial here. That means an abdo exam as well.
1: And then bloods?
0: I always ask for a VBG on a query bleed patient. It's quick and gives you an estimate of two critical pieces of information, which are
1: hemoglobin and urea.
0: Yeah. Yes. Um, HP often goes down in acute blood loss, obviously. And urea is a cool bit of physiology, which I alluded to in a previous episode, which I will now finally explain. The wait is over. Um, so hemoglobin contains proteins which, when broken down, make amino acids. Blood, which ends up in the stomach, is broken down and some of it will reach the liver and get broken down into urea and then enter the blood supply. Blood can be thought of as a protein meal effectively for this reason. And so a raised urea is a classic telltale sign of an upper GI bleed.
1: Hmm, that's very interesting. Are there any other bloods that we're interested?
0: Uh, VBG gives you a quick answer, as we said. Given you are already getting bloods, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? So you should get formal bloods, FBC and eus and will confirm your VBG findings later. And LFTs who think there's any liver issue abound. Clotting, because they are bleeding, so if that is compounding the problem, that will be good to know because you can try and fix that. Additionally, the prothrombin time in clotting is the best measure of synthetic liver function on regular bloods. Then finally, what blood test must we do?
1: Group and save?
0: Yes, a pink bottle always, always for any bleeding. It's also called a group and screen.
1: Then imaging?
0: Well, it's kind of jumping the gun a bit, but an endoscope is a camera test, so you could class an OGD as the definitive investigation for an upper GI bleed. But it's also the gold standard management procedure as well. Spoiler alert. Anything else for the management? So I always say conservative medical surgical, but that kind of doesn't really fit well here. First, stabilise the patient, resus fluids, get senior support early. You might need to put out a major haemorrhage protocol and replace their blood loss urgently. Then if you think the bleed is due to a known variceal bleed, which happens as patients often have had OGDs before, which can identify them, you can give them terlipressin.
1: Which is what exactly?
0: Well, it causes vasoconstriction by acting on V1 receptors, which are normally turned on by the hormone vasopressin also known as ADH or AVP, which you should hopefully remember from some preclinical endo. Vasoconstriction means a smaller lumen, which means less bleeding per unit time. Important in a variceal bleed, where you have distended, wide-bore veins which are bleeding. And then we come to endoscopy? Yeah, which is an entire career, really, so I'm not going to pretend that I can summarise this well now. The medical team should then be asking themselves, is this patient fit for an endoscopy, right? Would they tolerate one, and do they need one? If they need one, how urgently do they need one? From our point of view, that can be worked out by checking with your senior, and if needed, the on-call endoscopy service.
1: Do people often go for immediate endoscopies?
0: In reality, no. They need to be stabilized as much as possible so they can actually undergo the procedure, you've got to remember. But this is very much a senior-led decision, I'll be honest.
1: And anything to know about care after an endoscopy?
0: Again, it's a complicated topic, but I will say you will be doing ridiculously well if you knew of the existence of something called the Hong Kong Protocol.
1: I've never heard of that before. Yeah, what no, is right?
0: that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I know. Um, in short, it's beyond the scope of this episode, so no one panic. Okay, no one panic. But I mention it because it comes up quite a lot in clinical practice because lots of bleeds are caused by ulcers. The Hong Kong Protocol is a fancy way of saying give them high-dose IV PPIs for a while if they've had an ulcer.
1: And that's because they have an ulcer.
0: Well, sort of. It's because we want to promote the formation of a platelet plug over the bleeding ulcer. Platelets don't work well in acidic conditions. So PPIs help normalize the pH around the plug and allow the platelet to work better. To be honest, I really don't see that coming up in an exam. I just wanted to mention it because i never came across it in medical school at all and then when i was on call it was really awkward when i had these bleeps from nurses asking you to scrub this really high dose of iv ppi i had no idea why and they kept mentioning hong kong and it was all very weird anyway
1: (laughs) yeah that must have been an interesting experience so hong kong protocol high dose iv ppi after a bleeding ulcer is found on ogd Please tell me that's it. <laughs> Anything
0: yeah, else? Yeah, don't worry. Like, I, I've gone fully and above and beyond by talking about the Hong Kong protocol, so you can fully forget that if you want. Um, I think that entire topic's more than enough for one day.
2: Hi, everyone. This is Sally here with your summary for GI bleeding. So clinically, it isn't actually that useful to classify bleeding by whether it originates from the upper or lower GI, but it does help you remember the causes. The main causes of upper GI-derived bleeding are Mallory-Weiss tears, esophageal varices and upper GI cancers. The classic presentation includes coffee ground vomiting and melina, but key differentials for each include hemoptysis and iron-containing stools, respectively. When someone presents with bleeding, it is crucial to classify the quantity of the bleed. Admitted patients should have a Glasgow Blatchwood score calculated, and bedside investigation include OBS, abdominal and PR examination. Blood tests, you should always get an FBC, Eusenes, LFTs, clotting, VBG and critically a group and save. A reduced haemoglobin with an acute rise in urea is suggestive of an upper GI bleed. Initial management involves a full ATE assessment and stabilising the patient with resuscitation fluids or blood product replacement. Patients suspected of having a variceal bleed can be given terolipressin. In terms of invasive management, endoscopy, aka an OGD, is a gold standard diagnostic test and intervention. Senior-led discussion should clarify early if the patient would benefit from an urgent endoscopy. If they do undergo an endoscopy, you should always calculate a Rockall score beforehand. That's it, everyone. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Well, it turns out actually that isn't quite it. Sorry, Sally. So I was checking this over and realised we missed one of the minor causes of upper GI bleeding because basically I rejigged this episode a tad. It's esophagitis, literal inflammation of the esophagus. It's mainly caused by gourd, which we have covered, thankfully, in another episode. But I just thought I should mention this. And now, that's it.